Worth Doing special episode number three. Ari interviews Mark Goodman of Future Crimes. Welcome to the Less Doing Podcast. Less Doing, more living, more living, more living, more living. Hi, I'm Ari Mizell, and this is the Art of Less Doing. I'm going to teach you how to optimize, automate, and outsource everything in your life, including your health, in order to be more effective. I want you to stress less, free up as much time as possible, and do the things you want to do. Hey, it's Ari Mizell. Welcome to the Less Doing, More Living podcast. Nine years ago, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, a little-known, extremely painful, and seemingly incurable disease which forced me to go down a long road of radical transformation so that I could reduce stress and win back a normal life for me and my family. While extremely painful, Crohn's was the best thing that ever happened to me because it forced me to innovate and create the less doing more living system, which I used to govern my life. Then I was given the gift of starting to teach this system to other people. And over time, I was able to help more and more people through a video course, this podcast, and the less doing more living book. Now I have the privilege of working with some of the world's top business minds, including Dean Jackson, Joe Polish, Dave Asprey, and Jordan Harbinger, who have all decided to join me for the first annual Less Doing Live Summit that I'm holding in New York City from May 1st through 3rd. To get more information on the Less Doing Live Summit, you can go to the URL lessdoinglive.com, or you can also find links to the event on our main site, lessdoing.com. Now enjoy today's podcast, and if you listen to the end of the show, I am going to give you more information on this event, as well as a way you can earn a free copy of my book, Less Doing, More Living. So now I'm speaking with Mark Goodman on a secure line. (laughs) You'll find out why. Mark is a global security advisor and a futurist. He's the author of Future Crimes and uh, it may scare us a little bit on this interview, but he's an incredibly knowledgeable guy. So Mark, thank you so much for being with us. Even though you have a little bit of laryngitis, I appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Ari. It's my pleasure to be with you. So, can you just give us really quick a little bit of background on you? Sort of, you know, I, I know you've worked with Interpol and the FBI, and and how did how did you become this this person? <laughs> That's what my mom asks me all the time. How did this happen? <laughs> Where did I go wrong? Um, as a kid, I was always interested in being a police officer. I grew up in New York. I saw cops on the beat and I thought, wow, that's cool. I really want to do that. And so as a young man, after I graduated college, most of my pals went off to med school and I went off to the police academy and uh, really haven't ever looked back. So worked as a beat cop for many years. I started out uh, in New York City and then I uh, went out to Los Angeles, joined the LAPD, was there for all the fun stuff (laughs) uh, that the LAPD went through the LA riots, OJ Simpson, Rodney King, uh, which was kind of crazy. But along the way, um, developed this interest in technology and got my first cybercrime case in the very early days, in the you know mid to late '90s, uh, when it was called computer crime, and it was uh, kind of love at first sight. It was an interesting case. There weren't a lot of people around who knew much about computers in those days. I start off my book, Future Crimes, telling the story of how I got selected to to work in high tech crime, which was uh, a funny story. My lieutenant called me over, screamed my name across the detective squad room, and said, Goodman, come here. I showed up at his desk. Yes, boss, what can I do? And he said, do you know how to spell check in WordPerfect? <laughs> and I said, sure, boss, you know, shift F2. 
and he smiled a big grin and said, I knew you are my guy. I got a case for you. You're my techno geek. You're going to handle this case. So my ability to spell check put me at the heap of the list <laughs> in the techno elite of policing back in the day. And that's kind of how it all began. That's that's amazing, actually. Uh, yeah. it be, actually, I have a friend. Uh, his name, well, actually, you might have spoken to him. Jordan Harbinger. Did you ever speak to him? Name sounds familiar. Okay. Well, so he has a podcast called The Art of Charm, and he apparently accidentally became a uh, an FBI informant on, on cybercrimes <laughs> when he was a kid. He was like, I don't know, 16 years old, and I guess accidentally somebody started chatting with him who, who turned out to be a pedophile, and he basically trapped wow. this guy. But he told us a story about how he called the police, and he was like, I'm talking to this person on the internet, and the cop, the cop on the phone said, what's the internet? Yes. When I was working with Interpol, uh, I would, you know, go around the world and do trainings of police forces. And I ended up going to about 70 different countries. And in some country, I remember one country, uh, I was speaking Arabic. I wasn't speaking Arabic. I had an Arabic translator. And uh, this would have been about the year 2000, 2001. And I was here to train, you know, cops on internet crime. And I had my very trusty interpreter by my side. And I had prepared like this one hour lecture on internet protocol address and you know tracing crime conducting investigations and I said hello my name is Mark got to that and I said today we're here to discuss the internet and the translator goes in Arabic you know made some Arabic uh, words and then turns to me in, in English and says eh, what is internet <laughs> so my interpreter was like that was it forget about trying to train them on IP addresses and protocols and operating systems we couldn't even get past internet that's really funny. So, I, 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 there's like so many directions I want to go with this, and so I, I actually was kind of intrigued by hacking and stuff when I was younger. I never ever got into it, but the movie Hackers, okay, which I know is so far fetched from reality and what really can be done or what was done, but I feel like that's something that comes to mind when a lot of people think about cyber crimes, at least of my generation. I'm assuming you've seen it. <laughs> yeah, I, I have. As a matter of fact, you know, it's funny. Every generation, or at least in the past few, has had its hacker movie. For me, it was sneakers. War Games. Oh, or sneakers. Even before that, or so first War Games. Right. Was you know Matthew Broderick. I guess it would have been in the late '80s, and he was a kid in high school who accidentally hacked into the Pentagon and you know caused global thermonuclear war. Oops. Uh, so <laughs> good premise, and as you pointed out, sneakers, hackers, the net, all of these movies are out there. Uh, I have lots of friends who are hackers and lots of friends who work in high tech. And for many of them, you know, they get annoyed by what they see on the screen. They're like, that's not how you hack. This doesn't work like this. Uh, I take it in as all being good fun. And in fact, some of those films, you know, I found inspirational as I thought about my work. Like when I was in high school and saw a kid, you know, that could change his grades by hacking to the school computer. I'm like, that looks pretty interesting. Right. Okay. So, but the, and this is actually the point I want to make. So that's a lot of that stuff is sort of uh, like you can not that they're the bad guy, but those are situations where I feel like you can side with the bad guy. You know, it's like oh well, he's changing his grades, or he's you know messing up somebody's cable system or something like that. But I feel like the the bigger threats nowadays that people don't even think about are things like you know three D printing of weapons, for instance, or uh, probably recreating. You know the Ebola virus. Somebody could probably figure out how to do that somehow, right? I mean, or am I being far fetched now? <laughs> 
you're not being far-fetched. I just want to go back and clarify something. When I was watching those movies, I wasn't siding with the hackers. No. Uh, but I, had, I had an appreciation for what they were capable of. Uh, in, in the book Future Crimes, I have a bunch of quotes. And one of the quotes is, uh, I, I think it was, it, this was written in another book. It said, the thief, the thief is truly the artist. The policeman is only the critic. And I thought, oh, okay, I get that. Um, so I, I can appreciate the inventiveness of these guys, their creativity, but ultimately, obviously, they're causing tremendous harm. You know, ripping off lots of people yeah. and and posing some significant threats. But well, and and, not- and not to interrupt you, I mean, you know, have somebody like Kevin Mitnick, for instance, who, if people don't know, is one of the more famous hackers, I guess, out there. And a yes. lot, and he talks about how a lot of the times it was just a phone call to you know a night watchman. And it was what he called, I guess, social engineering or social hacking. And it didn't require a computer at all. You just told somebody, oh, I left this at my desk. Like, oh, can you just read me the numbers on the back of the modem there, that, that you know, white boxy thing on the left side of the computer? Like, so it, a lot of that is just it, social sort of uh, deception, I guess. Ari, you are exactly right. Social engineering is huge. It's very funny because most people, good people, you know, the vast majority of folks go through a life with a perspective that I'm a fair and decent person. Everybody else is a fair and decent person. I don't lie. I guess other people don't lie. And so it's very easy for them to be deceived by people who are experts at lying and manipulating. And you mentioned Kevin Mitnick and, you know, he's all about the art of deception and kind of honed and, and well tuned that skill very, very um, uh, famously. So that is out there. And it's so easy to trick people, unfortunately. I mean, how many folks have received that email from the Nigerian prince, right? Right. I'm trapped in Nigeria. I have $50 billion and I can only trust you. But people still fall for it. I mean, I I understand that some people still get Actually, fall for it to the point of going to Africa or and going to you know to Nigeria or the other countries it's coming from and actually getting kidnapped. Hundreds of thousands of people a year fall for these you know four one nine scams or yeah. West African fraud scams. And by the way, they're really good. Like I remember a case that I was familiar with where um, some British person, British man, basically gave up his life savings because he was convinced he was getting in on an oil deal by the Nigerian. Minister of you know energy, and they yeah. invited him. You know the scammers invited him to Lagos, and when he showed up at the airport, he was met by the minister security detail, who took him in a Mercedes limousine with Nigerian flags on the front to the Nigerian Ministry of Energy, where the guards saluted him. He was taken upstairs went to the minister's office, saw the minister's picture on the wall, shook his hand, sent another you know million pounds of his hard-earned money to the uh, Nigerian oil minister, and then left. Turns out the whole thing was a ruse. The real oil minister was out on vacation. Everybody was bribed along the way. The chauffeur was fake. The flags were fake. They were able to bribe people to go directly to the minister's office and, and have that conversation. So the levels to which these guys will go to pull off their scams is phenomenal. Yeah, that's that's amazing. So now going back to what I was saying before about the three D printed weapons, for instance, and uh, you know recreating viruses like that. How much of that stuff is well? I mean, the three D printed weapons we know that's happening. 
Right. Well, so the book um, that I wrote is called Future Crimes, and it's basically everything that comes after cyber. Obviously, cyber threat is very much in the news these days, and people are very focused on that. But many make the mistake to think, wow, this is the cutting edge of crime. And I guess my point is that this is only the beginning. Cyber was only the beginning, and we're about to see this whole new series of threats emerge. And that's because every physical object in our world is becoming an information technology. So the printing press that Gutenberg invented used to be an old mechanical device. And then, you know, it became, uh, you know, fast forward uh, a few centuries or whatever, and it came to be this electronic device, whether it be the printer on our desk or a 3D printer. And both of those are nothing more than computers, right? They are hardware that do specific purposes. And so once anything converts itself into a piece of hardware or software, it becomes hackable. So printers become hackable, uh, All any type of uh, physical or mechanical device. So our cars today, as an example, have more than 250 microchips in them. They control everything from the windshield wipers, the braking system, the radio in your car, your telephone, your GPS, the airbags. All of those are controlled by computer chips, and all of those are hackable. So today, cars aren't the mechanical devices that you know uh, Ford invented. They're computers that we ride in. Elevators are computers that we ride in. Pacemakers are computers that we get implanted into our chest. And so when everything gets transformed into a computer, everything becomes hackable. The subtitle of Future Crimes is everyone is connected. Every, everything is connected. Everyone is vulnerable and what we can do about it. And I think that that is really an important point. To your specific question about 3D printers, 3D printers are going to be great. They're going to reduce the cost of manufacturing. We're going to be able to make uh, devices in our home that are incredibly useful and helpful. 3D printers are already for sale at Staples and other places but there certainly will be bad guys playing with 3d printers and as you talked about there are opportunities to 3d print weapons right so you can 3d print a gun you can 3d print a magazine uh, and some of these the way that they're printed cannot be picked up by modern metal detectors depending on what sort of material you use so there was a famous case in israel where some reporters from an israeli radio station 3d printed a gun and snuck it into the israeli knesset so they were able to get it past security so with these new technologies certainly come new challenges Wow. Yeah. Actually, what I was thinking too about that is I backed a Kickstarter campaign months ago, and I'm actually supposed to get it pretty soon. And it's called the Micro. Is this your 3D printed gun that you've been waiting for? No, no, definitely not that. Um, it's, uh, but it is a it is a 3D printer, and it's it's about the size of like a half a loaf of bread. It's called the Micro. You can only print things that are like up to four inches large, four inches in size. Right. But I right. was thinking like you could put that probably, or maybe not that exact one, but something like that. You could put it in a suitcase and take it on a plane. And while you're on the plane, you could print things out. Absolutely. And you know, if you go into an airport lounge, it's very common that they will have 3D print or that they'll have regular printers in case you're a businessman or woman in a lounge, you need to print something. Surely in the future they will have 3D printers there, you know, in the airport lounge. 
and what will you be able to make? To your exact point, when I gave my TED talk a few years ago uh, in the UK, uh, they, I was quite aware of the British restrictions on firearms and how stringent they were. And so I did not bring a gun into the United Kingdom. I brought a 3D printer and printed a gun while I was there and showed it on stage and made a silencer and a whole bunch of other devices. And the uh, Brits were not amused. Yeah, I'll bet. Wow. <laughs> I didn't... All this becomes possible. Yeah. So part of that, well, by the way, that makes it even that much more absurd when they take away nail clippers from you when you're going through airport security. Uh, but, um, well, don't get me started on the security theater that is, you know, the modern airport security operation. Well, so I have to ask, like, how can some, how can someone like you with your knowledge, how can you get on a plane? <laughs> like, how, how does, do you have to take like a handful of Ativan or something? I mean, how is it possible? Uh, Yes, I'm always heavily medicated, to your point. <laughs> uh, I, I, obviously, I don't get in airplanes. I don't ride in cars. I don't connect to the internet. I'm not on social networks. Mostly, I live in a cave. And <laughs> so happy there. No, I'm joking, uh, obviously. You know, you have to do a cost-benefit analysis and weigh the risks, right? I mean, you could be struck by lightning. You could be run over by a bus. And the point that I want to make, even though I talk about some of the security risks and implications of technology and specifically what criminals and terrorists are doing in that field. On balance, technology has been an utter boon to mankind, right? We'll bring a few billion people out of poverty as a result of technology. We're vastly extending life expectancy. We are reducing infant mortality. We More people have access to clean water. More people have access to education. More people have access to food as a result of our technology. So I... My position is, I would say, somewhat unique because many people that talk about security threats vis-a-vis uh, -vis cybercrime and technology are like, we need to ban all of these things. I'm decidedly against that. We don't need to ban things necessarily outright. We need to have effective, logical public policy regulation um, wherein we can maximize the benefit that these technologies offer, but also be fully cognizant of the downsides and be prepared uh, for them when they arrive, because they surely will. Sure, and that, and that's a very reasonable approach, I think. Now, what, this is a slight tangent, but my understanding from the news and from things that I read is it seems like one of the more sophisticated groups in terms of using technology to skirt the law seems to be like drug cartels. Is that is that true or based upon your own experience with drug cartels? <laughs> well, it just seems like I mean, obviously, you have you know terrorists in the Middle East using drones, probably, and using certain weapons that are very advanced. But it seems like the like the Mexican drug cartels, particularly, are using vehicles and helicopters and technology that it seems like incredibly advanced. No, uh, absolutely. You are right. And uh, the narcos are very much on the cutting edge of technology. Uh, I often tell people when I was a young police officer, the drug dealers in the neighborhood had mobile phones and pagers long before any police officer ever did. So they are very much early adopters of technology. Fast forward to today. Drug dealers are not just carrying mobile phones and pagers. They're actually building their own mobile phone networks down in Mexico. The cartels down there have literally built their own nationwide encrypted radio telecommunications network that extends to all 31 states in Mexico and down into Honduras. So there you have a nationwide encrypted criminal 
telephone network. Now, think about how hard it is to get an AT&T cell phone signal in you know, Chicago or San Francisco, and the narcos have recreated their own. So yes, they're very sophisticated. They have tremendous amount of funds that they ha- can put at their disposal to hire hackers to bring in some of the technological minds, um, the best technological minds to do it. We've seen narcos uh, not only you know having very sophisticated telecommunications and internet and encryption equipment, but now they're very much into robotics and drones. Drug dealers for over a decade have been launching narco subs from down in Colombia into the North American shores. And each one of these subs can carry like 2,000 tons of uh, drugs. So depending on the size of the sub. So it's quite huge, uh, the amount and volume of drugs that they can bring in. And now more and more narcos are also using uh, flying uh, UAVs and drones. There was just a story two or three days ago that a quadcopter drone um, crashed on the Mexican-U.S. border carrying six pounds of methamphetamine. And the reason why the drone crashed is because it was only rated for three pounds of methamphetamine. So, you know, buying a, a drone for a couple of hundred bucks and flying across the border, we have no systems in place that can detect and respond to these systems. So the good guys are always playing catch-up, and the bad guys are quite inventive. Well, it's it's funny because it reminds me, uh, for, for my senior thesis, I was, I was always been interested in history, and I did a thesis on the history of organized crime starting with prohibition or i was focused on prohibition and there was yeah it was really fascinating to me for some reason and there was a boat builder who's the name i can't remember now but there was a boat builder in long island that was building uh, capture boats for the police at the time and literally the same boat builder was building faster boats for the rum runners it it was like the the police got one engine they got two engines it was amazing that's awesome. Yeah. Yep. And you see that time and time again. You know, you talk about their power, obviously, is the profitability of the drug trade. So uh, there was a guy, a famous drug dealer, he ran the Sinaloa cartel down in Mexico, and his name was El Chapo, uh, or, you know, Joaquin Guzman, but El Chapo was his nickname. And when he was finally arrested, I guess about a year ago, by uh, authorities in Mexico, they did a search of his house, and one of the things that they found was his uh, cash room, if you will, his vault, where he kept, you know, his petty cash. And by the time the police were done counting it, there was two hundred million dollars in bills. So he had two hundred million dollars in cash in his house. U.S. And U.S. dollars, yeah. two hundred million U.S. in his house, and that's just one drug dealer from one cartel. To put that amount in perspective, Interpol's annual budget is ninety million dollars. So one narco just has more money in his basement than Interpol has to fight crime, you know, in two hundred plus countries. Oh my gosh, that's that is a really interesting way to put it in perspective. Um, so what what scares you? I mean, as far as like the, the crimes that might be out there or might not be coming yet that you've sort of foreseen, like that you can share with us, of course. Sure. Um, well, besides mean podcasters like yourself that you know do scare me <laughs> with their tough questions, uh, no, all, all joking aside, uh, 
what I would say is that concerns me is something that you alluded to earlier and we didn't address yet, which is the bio threat, um, biology, yeah. synthetic biology, computational biology, industrial biology. All of them are fancy terms for more or less the same thing. And to take people through it, most folks will be familiar with the concepts of genetic. But what is happening now through advances in technology is that biology is becoming an information technology during the 50s, we sort of understood that there was this thing called DNA. And as time went on, we started to decode it and understand it. By the 80s, we were making progress in saying, oh, wow, this part of you know a DNA strand or chromosome can go ahead and mean that you've got blonde hair or blue eyes or whatever it may be. The big breakthrough in the late 90s uh, of the last century, sounds fun to, funny to say, but in the late 90s, the big breakthrough was is that we had a national project called the Human Genome Project to decode every bit of d- human DNA. And that was finished uh, in, I think, early 2000, 2001, which meant for the first time we knew the alphabet soup by which DNA strands could be written. So the ATCG, the genetic base pairs that made up DNA. And what that meant is now, finally, we could actually reorganize DNA. We could actually write DNA. We could write our own genetic code. When you think about it, man started coding in silicon with ones and zeros because we weren't sophisticated or advanced enough to understand you know the original operating system which is in which is dna it exists in every living thing on the planet and that basic genetic code can be manipulated and it can be manipulated for good and it can be manipulated for ill so i talked about you know increased lifespans radically curing vast amounts of diseases uh, synthetic biology makes all of that possible we can actually today come up with very, very specific personalized cancer treatments. The old methodologies of treating cancer was, well, we'll just give you radiation and chemo throughout your whole body and maybe it will help. What we understand today is that with synth- with cancer, that every body's cancer is unique, singularly unique. Every cancer has its own genetic makeup. And so doctors and medical researchers can actually now do genetic testing on your own cancer, target your own cancer cells specifically with personalized cancer treatments, which is possible through advances in synthetic biology. And there are some other crazy things that you can do with it. Unfortunately, the downside of personalized cancer treatments are personalized bioweapons. I wrote an article in the Atlantic Monthly that kind of talked about this called Hacking POTUS. And it was all about hacking the president of the United States via his own biology and what that would look like. So new synthetic biology opportunities will help from a medical perspective, but they'll also create opportunities for new bio threats and new bioweapons. And since we talked about drugs earlier, it will also open up tremendous opportunities to create new forms of narcotics and hallucinogens. So now you don't need to grow the cocoa leaves that, you know, are the main active ingredient in cocaine. You can just go ahead and take that genetic sequence from the cocoa leaf and implant it in a yeast uh, cell and then grow that in bread or make beer with it and use all the same active ingredients of cocaine. So it's really going to be a big game changer. Yeah, that's that's going to give a new meaning to gluten free when you have cocaine bread. Uh, <laughs> so, what what about Tor? Can we talk about Tor for a second? And for people who don't know, Tor is the Onion Router. It's a an anonymous browsing 
a browser basically for the for the deep web, the the web that you can't search for on Google. But there's some pretty bad uses of Tor, and a lot of that's been in the news. Right. So as you say, Tor, the Onion Router, is a piece of software that you download, and what it does is encrypt your communications point to point and allow you uh, to access things that otherwise would not be obvious. So when you type in something on the internet, most people think if they put in, you know, New York Mets on Google, that they're going to see all of the returns for all of the information available on the Mets. But that's not true. Actually using uh, tools like Tor, you can get to the deep web, the dark web, this other hidden part of the web and uh, with specific addresses. And these addresses, rather than ending in .com or .net, end in .onion for the Onion Router. A few things to note. Uh, interestingly, the Onion Router was actually created by the U.S. government. It was the Department of the Navy that created it. Why would they have created something like this? Well, it was done in the 1990s to help democracy activists overseas to get access. I think it was the 1990s to 2000, something in that time frame. But basically to help democracy activists overseas who could not communicate because they were blocked by national firewalls. So the Onion Router helped democracy activists in China, Iran, and elsewhere reach out and touch the world. So it was a very legitimate use. But like many technologies, soon the bad guys got onto it and realized that they could create these hidden sites in the deep web and the dark web that they could use and claim as their own. And as you rightly pointed out, RE people are using those for the purposes of selling drugs, selling weapons, exchanging child pornography, uh, the Bitcoin exchanges and the like. So there is a whole dark side to the internet that can't be seen. And just one amazing statistic, uh, the index web, the part that we think that we know as the internet, the nice parts, the Facebook, Google, Amazon, you know, ESPN, whatever it may be, that's actually only a tiny fraction of the net that is out there. It turns out that the unindexed portion of the net, the data that's hiding in large company databases and in uh, behind these Tor uh, walls is actually much larger than the other net. So uh, when you're searching Google, you're effectively only searching really less than 1%, literally, of the information available in the world. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's shocking and frightening in a way too. So, Mark, what, what are... Your top three, and this is this is usually the last question I like to ask on the podcast. What are your top three tips for or pieces of advice for people to be more effective? And that could be, you know, to be more secure or to be more productive or however you want to interpret that. Just three ways to be more effective. I guess since we talked mostly about cyber risk and security, I'll give a few tips on that, and it'll be tough to limit it to three. Uh, but I would say just use a healthy dose of uh, incredulity, right? Before you go online, you know, stop, think, then connect. We talked about social engineering earlier, and it's so easy to trick people. So think really long and hard. Before you click on a link, or before you download and open that document, think, think, think. That's one uh, piece of advice. The other thing is to go ahead and make sure that occasionally you turn off your electronic devices. It sounds dumb, but if you just kept your computer off for the eight hours that you were asleep, you would cut your cyber risk by 33%. Right, that's a big thing. 
um, that you can do right there. And the last thing I would suggest is that people use encryption. Uh, it's a great way to protect your data on your smartphone, on your laptop in case it gets lost or stolen. You will be protected and also to use a VPN so that, that when you're on public Wi-Fi, people can't see your bank details, your Facebook logins and those types of things. I will say that on my website, I have something called the update protocol, which is actually six steps, not three. But it gives people six steps that they can take to be more effective in protecting themselves online and protecting their families and their businesses. Well, and so those are really great tips. And one more that I actually want to ask you about that you just reminded me of, and I'm, as I'm looking at my computer, the camera on most computers is a real point of vulnerability, right? It is. So it turns out that the camera on your computer or on your smartphone can be activated by hackers really easily. So why would somebody do that? Well, there was a woman called Cassidy Wolf. Actually, she was a girl, a teenager, 16 years old. She was Miss Teen America, and she did not realize that you know she was in her bedroom every day when she came out of her bathroom, out of the shower, naked. She would be walk past her laptop, but her laptop camera had been hacked. And so uh, after doing that for a long time, six months later, she got an email where. Somebody was extorting her, sent her the pictures that they had taken of her and said, you know, unless she performed certain sex acts online in front of the video camera, that they would expose all of these pictures, post them online, share them with her classmates. Fortunately, she went to the FBI. Many people don't, and they succumb to that type of extortion. When she went to the FBI, they did a year-long investigation and found out that it was actually one of her classmates who had hacked her. Wow. The interesting thing about it, as you point out, Ari, is that the whole thing is preventable. You can take a little piece of sticky tape or a Post-it and put it over your camera to protect that type of hack. On the business side, for those folks working in uh, large companies or uh, even startups, the risk, hopefully, isn't that from you walking naked in front of your camera, but more so uh, discussing you know, your company, your intellectual property, your secret uh, or confidential plans and intentions. The old model of industrial espionage is we would sneak somebody into the building and they would bug the room. Now we don't need to do that anymore. So that you know, video uh, conference system that you have in your office that uncovered camera may be the thing that can be hacked. So uh, easy to cover up and to avoid that threat. And if you go to futurecrimes.com, you'll get more information on the book and you'll see the whole update protocol there with those tips. I was just going to ask you for the URL. So Mark, thank you. This has really been very eye-opening and very informative. And it's uh, really, really nice to talk to you. So thank you so much. Thank you, Ari. The pleasure was mine. Hey, it's Ari again. Thanks for listening to today's show. As I promised at the beginning of the show, I am going to tell you more about the Less Doing Live event in New York City from May 1st through 3rd. Then I will tell you how you can earn a free copy of the Less Doing More Living book. Less Doing Live is an event I am putting on with Business Research Group in New York City. We've designed this event to give you and a small group of Less Doing fanatics a personal, quality experience. We are limiting this event to 150 participants in Manhattan to make sure that I get a chance to meet and hang out with every one of you. Now, here's why this event is different. You see, most business conferences are just a series of speeches on a stage where smart speakers get up and give you tons of great information. In fact, it's usually so much that you don't know what to do with it all. But at Less Doing, our community is all about taking action. So I have designed this event to make you take action. But at Less Doing, our community is all about taking action, 
So I've designed this event to make sure you do take action because the only way to make big changes in your life is to invest in yourself. And that's not only an investment of your money because you can always earn more of that, but rather an investment of your time, which is something so precious because you can never get it back. So at this event, we're not just going to talk. On the first morning, Dave Asprey and I are going to share with you the latest cutting-edge tips on how to hack your productivity and biohack your body. But then that afternoon, it's going to get really exciting when we break down into small groups and get you into workshops to solve your biggest problems in productivity. What are the workshops going to be? They'll be designed to help you tackle the fundamental problems that stop 99% of the world from realizing their full potential. Getting your email down to inbox zero and mastering your communications with the world? Or a scheduling class where you can learn how to automate your schedule to the point where you will have a calendar working for you? Or an outsourcing class where you can learn how to get rid of 95% of the things that you shouldn't be doing on a daily basis? We're also going to have a biohacking class that's going to include nutrition and help you master your body and your life. Which one of these classes should you attend? Well, that's where my Less Doing Certified Coaches come in. Before we even let you get to the event, you have to speak to one of our coaches so that we can talk to you and see if the event is right for you. That way we can make sure that we truly help you. So to get to the event, you just need to enter your email and then register to speak to one of our Less Doing Certified Coaches in a free 45-minute coaching call where you will learn the one area of your life that you need the most help with and will get the most impact out of. Now, as a special gift to you for joining this free coaching call, I want to recognize your commitment to your productivity by giving you a free copy of the book, Less Doing, More Living. Thanks for listening.